Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Stuart Popham, who's going to be speaking to us today on the globalization of the business of English law. Well, I guess a couple of generations ago, the notion that law was a business would have struck some people as being uh, rather a tasteless um, um, observation to make. I'm, Stuart, I'm sure Stuart will fully justify the title that he himself has given to uh, the talk with some degree of suggestion on the part of uh, myself. Uh, Stuart was the senior partner of Clifford Chance. He has very recently stepped down. So he is the senior partner emeritus of uh, Clifford Chance. And we know um, what the word emeritus means in uh, English university circles. It doesn't, as some people seem to imagine, mean without merit. Stuart was very recently um, given the nearest equivalent to a nobleman in the legal world. He was given uh, a QC honoris causa in the last award, which, uh, which I think amounts to a very significant recognition. What's perhaps less well known is that Stuart took part in prime ministerial visits for the previous Labour government, uh, for the current coalition government, in both cases to India and to China. Fortunately for Stuart, he wasn't asked to go to Libya. <laughs> <clears throat> now, that is enough really from me. Stuart is going to be speaking for something like 35 minutes or so. There will be ample time for questions. And the purpose of this exercise is to engage the audience as fully as possible. Stuart. Thank you very much. Good evening, uh, Michael. Uh, thank you very much for that. Um, perhaps I should start by saying that whatever else I say uh, tonight, uh, and whatever else you remember, whatever else you seek to quote me uh, as having said, can I ask you to keep one or two things in mind? Uh, uh, the first is that, really, as a practicing lawyer, it's always, and first uh, and last, always about professional standards. It's always about seeking to uphold uh, the rule of law, of seeking justice, of doing absolutely the best job for your client, uh, and it's the people that matter. Uh, and I will talk about business. Uh, and I will talk about globalization, but I don't want you to get the impression that any other aspect of the discussion this evening should take away uh, from uh, the critical elements, as I see them, uh, of the practice of law. Um, the intention, as Michael says, is, is um, to have questions at the, at the end. Um, I'm very happy to answer uh, questions on anything, I suppose but probably I'm better first in things to do with the law uh, and uh, the business. And I thought I would have a slightly provocative title in terms of, uh, of what I was going to talk about. But what I should say is that what I'm going to say tonight shouldn't necessarily be um, seen as some indication of a particular line of thinking or strategy of Clifford Chance. Uh, it's entirely my own uh, beliefs. Uh, and as uh, Michael said, indeed, since the 1st of January, there's a rather large hole in my office, uh, in the floor, where the lever of power has been removed, uh, and now that's something of a dim uh, and, and distant uh, memory. Indeed, I have some, I think, um, this is really just an illustration that you can become rather retentive as, as an elderly lawyer. I've got 43 days to go, 
by which time I'll have done, I calculated this the other day, 12,851 days uh, in the firm, whether that's all logged in in timesheets, to what extent that's chargeable time, well, that's really history and uh, is not now relevant, although it puts me in mind of that rather cruel statement by David Meller, the one-time um, Conservative uh, Cabinet Minister and Chelsea fan who likened lawyers, you may know this, to rhinoceros. Uh, he said, uh, thick-skinned, short-sighted, and always ready to charge. <laughs> so, um, subject to any deviation that the questions might lead me to, um, what I want to cover tonight is what I will describe as, as eight areas, eight sections. And the reason I tell you that is so that those of you who are here purely to obtain some kind of continuing professional education will know how far we've got, how, more, how much more you've got to do in order to qualify uh, for that hour or so uh, that you're here to do. I thought I would start, actually, with a little history about myself, progress to what it was like in 1976 when I started, and I'd rather you didn't all think, well, I wasn't born then, but to the extent you do think that, I'll try and give you a picture of what it was like for those of us who were. Um, I will discuss whether it's a business or a profession. I'll review the benefits of English law and the English or the UK legal system, uh, give you some indication as to what I think the lawyers of tomorrow need to do. And uh, having covered opportunities, I think I should look at challenges, and then in the final section what I've rather pompously uh, thought of in my mind as words of wisdom. So turning to me, um, just to sort of set the scene in a way, I had absolutely no idea what the life of a solicitor uh, was going to be like. I had watched a few television programs. I'd read a few crime novels. I had actually once been to lunch with a solicitor, which I have to tell you was particularly boring. Um, so I took a degree uh, in law at Southampton, which was solely to allow me to continue to maximize the opportunity to go sailing. Um, and then I went for six months of dictated, and I stress the word dictated, lectures at the, at the College of Law in Guildford and turned up in a firm called Clifford Turner, which was one half of the firm that has become Clifford Chance. I'd written to them applying for a trainee contract or what was then described as articles. Uh, I was interviewed and got a, a, an offer letter the next morning and thought I'd better say yes on the basis that I was then one nil up uh, and things could only really go downhill since then. Um, I have to tell you, I've never actually um, gone for another job interview in my life and I probably will therefore not tempt fate and I'll leave it at one nil. I intended actually to become a banker at the time. I thought I was better placed if I had a professional qualification and therefore a couple of years as, uh, during articles seemed to me a reasonable price to pay given that at the time the leading investment bank then called a merchant bank, one S.G. Warburg, was offering £500 a year more uh, to join them if you had a professional qualification as an accountant or as a lawyer and as I was being paid £2,200 a year at the time plus 15 pence a day luncheon vouchers, which were particularly useful. That £500 seemed pretty significant to me. But within weeks, quite frankly, I fell in love with the role of a solicitor. It was exciting, it was varied, uh, and it seemed to allow me to occupy a seat very close to the centre of, of, of activity. So, quite frankly, I was enthralled. I spent a significant amount of time in the early years uh, involved in litigation because there'd recently been a corporate crash. There was no money, no activity. In fact, in a sense, the circle had now come round uh, fully. Uh, I can remember investigating the route of title of 225 petrol stations, and that was my, uh, it, my, my training as, a, as a, a real estate lawyer. I have a distinct memory of serving a writ on a man who came to the front door absolutely stark naked and not knowing where on earth I served the writ. Um, 
but generally enjoying everything I got involved with. And in those days, Clifford Turner had some 200 people in the London office, a further 50 or so in three offices in Europe that had been opened in the previous five or six years. And I believe the turnover of the firm that year exceeded £4 million for the first time. So I put that as a context for you. I qualified in 1978 into the litigation practice. A year later, the then senior partner came to me and suggested that there was a far shorter ladder to partnership in the banking practice, and I should move in that direction. It took me many, many years to realize that what he was saying was, you have no future at all as a litigation lawyer. Your only chance lies as a banking lawyer. So I joined banking. Uh, that was at a time when three noughts, frankly, at the end of a loan agreement made it a very big one. Uh, and uh, I can remember one of the first things I did was I documented a currency swap. Uh, it, it ran to three ring binders of documents. It took three months. And today, um, you can execute a currency swap in a millisecond, which is done entirely electronically by computer, uh, and it's just as much a binding contract. So things have, uh, in that sense, changed. I won't go into the details of the subsequent years, safe to say I spent three years in Singapore in the early 80s, sent there so that I didn't keep asking the senior partner why I hadn't been made a partner, um, even though I was only two or three years qualified. And I had a great time in Asia. Uh, and to me, that was very important. It gave me a perspective that I think was invaluable about different systems of different vantage points, of different experiences. And that really allowed me to become a partner in 84 and shortly thereafter to return to London. And then in 1987, I was the junior partner charged with negotiating the merger between Clifford Turner and Cowd Chance, which today, some 24 years later, comprises 7,000 people, 25 different countries, a turnover of 1,200 million pounds or more. Uh, and as I was incapable of not uh, really expressing an opinion on internal matters or views about the management, I found myself elected to run the banking practice in London uh, and subsequently the global banking practice. Uh, and then in the end of 2002, I became the senior partner. And I'm on record and very happy to repeat tonight that as I believe that role is actually the best possible job in the world of the law. In terms of what it was like in 1976, which is item two on my list, if you're counting, you have to imagine a world without personal computers, where in the London office there were two photocopiers, where a transactional matter involving more than three lawyers was an event and five would have been unheard of. Incidentally, just to put it into the context of the world, there was not a single lawyer practicing in China at that stage. It was in the middle of the Cultural Revolution. It was well underway. I did a rough calculation on the back of an envelope the other day, and I concluded that something like 40% of all matters now being dealt with by Clifford Chance around the world are in areas of law or commerce that didn't exist in 1976. There was, of course, no internet, no mobile phones, no Blackberries or equivalent. Draft documents were exchanged between firms of lawyers. The first one was typed. You commented on the next one in red. The counter comments were in green. The next were in blue. And you were confident that it would take three days for the document to get from your desk to the other side's lawyer to be marked up and sent back again. And frankly, um, all night meetings were a thing of awe and amazement. So when did it change? Well, certainly in 1976, no one had challenged whether the profession was a business. I believe that turning point actually was shortly after Mrs. Thatcher came to power. The term service economy hadn't really existed. The question of service quality certainly didn't. The office closed at 5.30. The answer phone was switched on until 9 o'clock the next morning. And heaven help you, 
if you really wanted to meet a lawyer very quickly. But Mrs. Thatcher and subsequently Ronald Reagan challenged business, challenged individuals to see if they couldn't improve, couldn't provide a better service. Oops. You okay? It's the first person to fall asleep tonight. Anyway, that's okay. Um, and really challenged us to see if we couldn't improve, couldn't provide a better service, whether we could get a recognition for that better service and see if we could produce client loyalty and indeed increase our income. Now, I have to say that I am an absolute and positive believer that you can be both a professional and in business. What I think happened from the early 80s is that law firms began to realize that to maintain quality, to control their development, to maximize their potential, they had to be run like businesses. A law firm really can be run in very much the same way as a hotel. The guests, in this case, are the lawyers. They need to have the services that will encourage them to visit the hotel, to stay, to tell their friends, and then for the clients to experience the comforts of the hotel, all five stars of it, and want to return. That has nothing to do with the professionalism of the lawyers. They're just the guests staying in the hotel. What they should feel is that they can better present their professional qualities to their clients without having to worry about the housekeeping, whether the services in the hotel will function each day, but better to leave that to people equally professional in their areas. An accountant as a finance director, an IT expert choosing the computer system. Certainly when I started, that was a role for partners to do when they weren't busy, something to do after lunch. Those law firms, I believe, which feel only such decisions can be made by partners because it's their money, will not be having the best advice and will certainly not make the best decisions. It seems strange now, but in 1976, and indeed not until 1983, were you allowed as a solicitor, as a lawyer, to advertise. You were not allowed to publish something that would suggest or claim that you had some element of specialization. And ideally, really, your name would not have featured at any time. For that matter, the legal press didn't exist. It wasn't even a speck in people's eyes, with the possible exception of the Law Society Gazette, whose principal purpose was to report disciplinary proceedings against recalcitrant solicitors and advertise for lost relatives who might benefit under a will. Now, we talk now about a service economy, that the UK is part of a service economy. We talk about the better part of 60% of the working population in the UK working in service businesses. But that really is something that's only been recognized in my professional career. But that, as I will turn to shortly, is where I think the future lies. In 2003, I was really pleased that we at Clifford Chance were the founding sponsors of the Center for Professional Service Firm Management at the Said Business School at Oxford University. Since which time, all self-respecting business schools now have people looking at professional service firms. There was no handbook, no guidance before then, and yet I found it fascinating that business school professors would ask me what management theories I was following or to expound upon the expertise of the professional service firm manager. All of this is just a single generation of development, where now I believe lawyers look to have businesses which are as professionally run as the level of the professional advice they aspire to provide. Personally, I have no time for many of the jurisdictions around the world that I have visited and perhaps during question time and under a Chatham House rule approach we might name, but let's not name them at the moment, that feel that multinational law firms such as mine have ignored their roots, forgotten their professional standards, and seek nothing to do more than charge fees. I can name two jurisdictions which hold that view at the bar council level, 
and yet maintain rules that prohibit the provision of pro bono advice for those in need, for those unable to pay for the fees, because it might undermine the ability of their professionals to charge fees. So let me turn to the fourth item, the benefit of English law. There is absolutely no doubt that the combination of English language, the Commonwealth, <coughs> the long-standing revered independence <coughs> of the judiciary, have allowed firms of lawyers based in or emanating from the UK to have a meaningful advantage. It has been British firms, and to a lesser extent US firms, <coughs> which have led to the internationalising of the law. And why so? Uh, to a large extent because of international trade. From the 18th century onwards, there have been benefits from the agglomeration, the aggregation of services in London. If you wanted to borrow money, charter a ship, insure it, draw up a bill of lading, and ultimately determine who was responsible for the lost cargo or to enforce that unpaid debt, then London was the place to come. Those rules were in turn introduced to Commonwealth countries. It seems to me that the rule of law, common law, a judicial system right down to the Whigs was the leave behind, the party bag for every Commonwealth country on its independence. And the Privy Council, the ultimate Court of Appeal and the ability of some entrepreneurial lawyers, not least some of my predecessor partners, to see that there was a need to follow the client has resulted in four of the world's six largest law firms being based in London. I'm put in mind of Pele, the great Brazilian footballer. He was asked whether he could attribute any particular talent to his prodigious goal-scoring capability. And what he said was, I always run to where the ball is going, not where it is. And I believe the same applies to the development of the international law firm. What we've done is spoken to the clients, sought to ascertain where the next move will be, and tried to get there before, or at least together with, our clients as that market develops. If you go too soon, it can be extremely expensive when you have too many lawyers and too little work. And if you go too late, the competition, of course, are already there. What, of course, we found was that the UK is too small a domestic market. Our aspirations were greater, in much the same way as the enterprising explorers of yesteryear so we had to look outside of the UK for clients. And that coincided happily with, in effect, globalization, increasing trade, uh, increasing movement, and the need uh, for advice wherever you might be. And many of the countries which I've had the benefit of visiting, which have a common law past or base, have politicians and leading lawyers who were trained in the UK. Indeed, many trained in this very institution and those people now exercise control and power and obviously influence in their country. And really, in the same way as the Jesuits recognized all those years ago, will be influenced forever by their initial education. Perhaps I can just take a moment aside to say it really worries me that we may not be quite as welcoming to people from around the world who wish to become lawyers as we once were. I see a war of attraction with so many countries seeking to attract people to work in their country to set up businesses, especially services, and whether that's banking or insurance, or in particular lawyers, they recognize the value of a service economy. I hope that we in the UK can rearm in that war of attraction and encourage more people to come here to train, to benefit from the British standard, to take those values that uh, they will have learned here back to their country, and with it a lifelong connection and affection for the UK. It's that, I think, that will lead to more work, to more jobs, to a greater value in the UK. The great attraction of a service economy is that the subject matter is portable. You can take a job from one country and get it done in another. 
and I'll talk more about that under the next heading. I do detect, I have to tell you, that there is an increasing desire amongst the young prospective lawyer in India or China, Vietnam or Brazil or otherwise to qualify at the New York Bar because that requires a three-month cramming, a tough exam, but once you've got it, you're a New York qualified lawyer. Here to be a solicitor, there is at least a six-month course and then two years training. And I believe that we will have to look very closely as to whether that is essential. We can protect the public, I'm sure, by ensuring that those lawyers practicing in England might then have to have a period of work experience to be fully qualified. But frankly, to be able to sit in China and to say that you've obtained a level of legal knowledge to sufficient to call yourself a lawyer who has reached the British standard doesn't really need you to sit in an office in London after you've passed the exam. What we need is that affiliation and affection, the trust of both the law and the legal system so that we can continue to advise on the commerce of the world. So what will that lawyer of tomorrow look like? And that's topic number five. I believe to be a successful lawyer in the 21st century, you need to be multi-skilled. You need, above all else, to be adaptable. During my career over 35 years, the world has seen more change, more things have been invented, more things have been brought into existence than in the entirety of history that um, happened before that period. The one thing I can be absolutely certain of is that there will be more change and it will be faster. So adaptability is at the top of my list. Second, I would stress communication. The capability to express your views, your advice, and whether that's in writing, orally, email, letter, perhaps not yet, tweet, uh, or some other form of social networking, I believe is entirely critical. Project management, quality control come next. Those are skills normally associated in the domain of the construction engineer or the scientist, but the lawyer needs them and needs more of them. You'll have to be a finance director because ultimately you'll need to get an appropriate fee for the good value that you've provided, and you'll have to make sure that those bills are paid and that your practice is profitable. You'll need to be an HR director because you're likely to work in large teams, inspiring and getting the best out of people. You'll need to be an educator because you'll continually be training the younger lawyers who come after you. You'll need to be an expert in business development because it'll be incredibly competitive out there and you're going to have to show why you should be hired and not the next person. You'll need to be a strategist. Where's your business going? Where's your next client? What's the next product or trend? Where's that change leading you? And you'll have to know a lot more about the world and what's happening in order to ensure that your advice is always relevant. You'll have the knowledge of your client's business because it's all very well giving the correct answer to the legal question, but actually is that the one most appropriate, most practical for your client? And then, of course, you have to be an IT specialist. In my career, we've seen, well, we've seen a knowledge management position go from being a desert to a complete jungle. When I started, if you wanted to know if someone else had ever seen a problem like this, had a document that might be relevant, you stuck your head outside the door and asked everybody that went past. And I spent years, I can tell you, discussing with sequential librarians as to what we would do with the growing piles of hard copy documents stored away in corners as to how we would ever retrieve them and use them in some relevant form. Today I have an internal Google-powered uh, search engine which accesses every single document produced by the 3,000 lawyers around the world. And the question is, can I navigate my way through the mass of information available to me? But that computer is getting clever. It's now telling me what's the most frequently used document. Who's used it? Which clients are being um, exposed to it? And I have an expert system that tells me who's an expert 
in each of the areas who's got the experience. So I actually firmly believe that the lawyer of the future needs to have the skill to assess the client's concerns, to analyze enough of the problem, and then you can be the instant expert by the touch of the button. I'm absolutely convinced that in years to come, society will consider the search engine to be just as important, just as much a breakthrough as the internal combustion engine was some hundred years ago. Finally, I believe that every lawyer actually needs to have a cultural understanding. If not the qualities of a psychologist, at least the ability to understand where someone's coming from, what culturally they might expect, and the background that forms their opinions. So what are those opportunities in the future? There's certainly going to be competition, but the world is expanding. The economies are developing, and the center of economic gravity is undoubtedly moving both eastwards and southwards. Let me give you an example. It has little to do with the law, but to me, it epitomizes it all. The Chinese recognized that they required a new airport terminal in Beijing in time for the last Olympics. They recognized that they would have hundreds of thousands of people descend on the games. And if they were to be successful, then that started the minute you landed in their country. So in four years, they built a terminal 20% bigger than terminals one to five combined of Heathrow. It even has a railway inside the terminal so that you can get from one end of the terminal to the other. On the day of construction, when it first started, 40,000 laborers turned up on the site. But the architect, the quantity surveyor, the structural engineer, the electrical engineer, indeed all the professional services had one thing in common. They were not Chinese-based businesses. Their expertise was required, that professional capability was required to turn the plentiful supply of labor into expert builders. And six of those seven uh, were based in the UK. It seems to me the opportunity is for the British lawyer to harvest the world of legal issues. Some can be solved on the spot. Others can be repatriated to the UK. There is work. There are jobs to be created. There's an opportunity for all lawyers. There is, I believe, now not a single file in the London office of Clifford Chance which does not have an international element to it. I take as an example even the most parochial of subjects, the most domestic issue, the purchase of land. It is likely today, for example, to be a purchaser from Asia. The vendor is likely to be a German real estate fund, the financier an American, and the tenant from South America. An understanding how the world of business, the business of law, can be applied, the business background of each of those from the multiple jurisdictions, a knowledge of how that, that deal can be sealed, that is the opportunity for the independent, the unbiased, the reliable British lawyer. China became the second largest economy at the end of last year. India will be the fourth within a handful of years. And to adopt that well-known approach of, of Willie Sutton, the well-known bank robber who, asked, uh, who, when asked why he robbed banks, merely replied, because that's where the money is. You have to see with a combined population of 4 billion people, 65% or more of the world's population, Asia offers immense opportunities. South America, potentially the breadbasket of the world, and natural resources, of which we have an insatiable desire, tend to be found in places where the legal systems are often not as well developed where a British legal solution will prevail. Just an interesting statistic for you to ponder. At the height, at its height, the British Raj had 15,000 expatriate Brits living in India. Today, there are one million Chinese living in Angola. The world is indeed developing. And what I've found is that dynamic economies need lawyers. 
An economy which is not expanding nor contracting seldom involves investment, the transfer of assets, the spending of money for which legal services are needed. But when an economy is expanding, such as India's, at 10% a year, where multinational investment is being made in the tens of billions, a lawyer is needed. And, of course, disputes will follow, and who better to resolve them than those trained from a British legal background? At the same time, there's a relentless onslaught of regulation. Every country is developing its own, and you can call it soft law, you can call it just the details of operation, but, it means, but what it means is that people need to consult with lawyers. And law is becoming more important internationally, whether that's to create unions of countries, for example, in the EU or Africa, whether to increase the effectiveness of the international courts of justice, of human rights, the United Nations. But I am hopeful that the more peaceful environment will ensure that problems will be resolved by lawyers and not by military force. And there is always change, always advancing, and always challenges. There's no time, I'm afraid, at this stage to debate the benefits of or the implications of the proposed European contract law. But that will require that much more impact from lawyers. So turning to the challenges, topic seven. What are those challenges? Actually, first off, it's to ensure that the client actually understands the law. I'll give you an example. A woman telephones her insurance company saying that her barn has burnt down, uh, that it was insured for £50,000, and would they kindly send her a cheque? Oh, no, replies the insurance company. You see, uh, we have to inspect the premises, assess the damage, and determine the value lost. There's a pause, and the woman says, well, in that case, you'd better cancel the life insurance on my husband. Or perhaps one uh, on litigation, an object lesson in defense for you, which was given by the Marx Brothers. They made a movie called A Night in Casablanca, and they were sued by the Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers claimed that they had the exclusive right to the use of the word Casablanca, as they had made a film of that name. So the Marx Brothers countersued, and they said they countersued over the use of the word brothers. They said they were brothers before the Warner Brothers, and anyway, the Warner Brothers weren't even really brothers. So the Warner Brothers dropped their suit. So there are some natural challenges, of course, of recession, of finding enough skilled people, of finding the clients. Those all exist, but there are some other challenges. And interestingly, along with the development of the legal press during my career, so we have the legal management consultants, each offering a myriad of conferences, books, online consultancy, and direct advisory work. I was sent a review by Smith and Williamson the other week, and I'll quote this one, but there are many others, and they looked at the legal market and law firms. And here I quote their view of the future. The sector, they say, is facing an unprecedented level of uncertainty deriving from political, economic, social, technological, and regulatory change. The shape of the legal market in, say, five years' time is therefore difficult to predict, although it is likely to look somewhat different to the current position. For those firms with strong management, clear competitive advantage, and a strategy that embraces these changes, the future could be both exciting and rewarding. Well, I guess we probably can't disagree with any of that. And then I got an email from another firm altogether saying for £350 plus VAT, I could have a report on the legal industry in the UK. It would tell me that 140 of my competitors are in serious financial difficulty, 72 have fallen in value by more than a third in the last year, and 39 others are worth more than they were two years ago. 192, by the way, have the highest acquisition rating, which I think means they're available for sale. So 
if there's not, you know, if that isn't an indication of business, what is? The real challenge there that I see, and it has always been that, that for us, is that a lawyer has to prove that they are good value. When I started, U.S. General Counsel had just commenced their request for a breakdown of legal fees, how many hours had been spent by whom and how much per hour. Before that, quite genuinely, the cost clerk would come along, would weigh the file, would count the number of letters in and the number of letters out, and then produce a bill. More recently, and following the recession, the question on the client's lips has been, does this now represent value for money? Is this the value that I got? For years, I think we've been able to enjoy a sort of cost-plus approach. The curious client now, though, is saying, so let me see. You can't tell me how much it's going to cost because I have to wait to see how long it takes. So where exactly is the incentive for you to do it quicker or at least fewer hours in solving my problem? The challenge for the 21st century lawyer is to deconstruct the process involved in advising, in acting for their client, commencing the minute you open the file, through the taking of evidence or in the discovery of information, the negotiation of the deal or the presentation in court, through to the final conclusion and then the billing and the sending to storage of the files. And then in, con in deconstructing that process, actually determine where the real value is, where the process could be better done by a more junior lawyer, where that process could be done by somebody who isn't legally qualified because it's an administrative function, where in fact it's become so commoditized it could be done by a computer. And the role of the lawyer would be to oversee the quality, to intervene where their knowledge and experience brings value, but not to overstaff it, nor to use overskilled staff. And that's something that Toyota, for example, discovered years ago, something that every industrialist, every manufacturer has known for a very long time. We lawyers are behind the times. It perhaps shouldn't surprise us, we're the only profession that looks for precedent. It looks backwards to find its inspiration for the future. My strongly held belief is that we are the last unreconstructed profession in the world, and our time now has come to, re to be reconstructed. If I was perhaps politically incorrect, I might contrast it with the oldest profession in the world, but I'm not going to do that. What I'm saying is that we do many, many things the same way today as we have done for time immemorial. And there are opportunities for us to advance and to advance our processes. To recognize that when dozens of lawyers are involved in a matter, it needs better planning, better control, and attention to value. My best comparison for you is to think of the Airbus aircraft. Its fuselage is made in one country, its engines in another, its wings in yet another. And each of those processes actually is not particularly valuable. That's a routine process that has been done before many, many times. The real value is in assembling it and putting it all together, adding the aeronautics, the electronics, the computerized brain. And that assembly is what the lawyer should be doing bringing together the expertise, the knowledge, the experience of others, and distilling that in the assembly process and the delivery to the client. And then communicating to the client, ensuring that the client can see where the value has been added. And that's the challenge. And there is a huge opportunity, equally to help clients reduce their own costs, showing them how best to use a lawyer efficiently. And at a time when every year 50,000 students are obtaining a law qualification and joining a legal process business in India, that's a business which today may look like a low-value business, one of repetitive tasks, but will increasingly move up the value chain. 
It has the operational benefits of scale, where other businesses, often internet-based, will also be challenging. This centre ground, currently occupied by established law firms, is under attack, and my cry, as far as lawyers are concerned, is they should wake up. I worked with Professor Shearer at Calgary University recently, who studied the development of major law firms. He ascertained in the 10 years following the Great Depression, commencing in 1929 in New York, the top 20 firms there changed dramatically. At the end of that 10 years, there were seven new entrants in the top 10 listing. Firms that had not existed or were so small had never been recognized before. And yet today, those seven remain in the top 15 law firms in New York. Born out of the difficulties of recession, they found a new business, a new business opportunity that just totally disrupted the market. The upstarts had taken over. We don't have time now to really discuss it, but I'm absolutely convinced that the offshored, the outsourced, if they can find the quality control that a magic circle firm could bring, would actually be in the Premier League within years. And that challenge will also come from Chinese firms, small now but starting to operate internationally. They were established less than 20 years ago. I'll give you the example of the firm of King & Wood, which in the last two years has now opened in three countries outside of China, and likely, in my view, to be amongst the most successful firms in future decades. Meanwhile, there are a million lawyers practicing in India, and not a single one of those is what I shall call a foreign lawyer, someone actually practicing a foreign jurisdiction. The challenge there is protectionism. So while Chinese firms are becoming increasingly international because they're sharing a market with international firms, Indian firms lag behind. An opportunity for them to become the regional powerhouse, to exercise influence on the same level that the expanding Indian businesses of Tata, Reliance, Infosys and others are doing so well is lost while they look inwards in the hope that they can preserve a dominant position. It is to the detriment of every young Indian lawyer who wishes to emulate their brother or sister, their cousin, who are computer programmers, management consultants, doctors, and who are traveling the world and benefiting from that international experience and studying other, with others with international experience. I live in the hope that lawyers around the world will recognize actually that open barriers and the maintenance of quality are what the public will benefit from. But as I say, I live in hope. I'm now going to turn to the last topic, what in my self-aggrandizing fashion I call pearls of wisdom. First, I believe that lawyers have to recognize that they have a huge privilege. They have the benefit of education, and with that they have the ability to influence, to succeed, and more often than not to enjoy a high standard of living. What they mustn't do is forget that they're also serving the public. It may be by upholding the rule of law, but I like to think that there should be something more, and that is often providing a direct benefit to those who do not enjoy their privilege, or who in some way or another are disadvantaged or even oppressed. The role of the lawyer pro bono publica should never be overlooked and should always be encouraged. Next, I would say be ambitious. It was Nelson about whom it was said that other admirals were more frightened of losing while he was more anxious to win. Tom Peters, the original business management guru, says that too much of business malaise in turbulent times is because firms talk about protecting the franchise when they should be winning the business. So I think you have to be adventurous and ambitious. Ambitious, perhaps, for other people's success. I've talked about adaptability, and you have to recall that Charles Darwin predicted that the fittest of the species would survive. But in fact, what he said was that those most capable of adaptation in changing circumstances and thus could best cope 
and were fittest for change would survive. And with all that knowledge out there and the opportunity to share and use each other's talent to best advantage, what I would most hope is that you recognize the value of teamwork. One of my great heroes is Ellen MacArthur. You may recall she sailed single-handed, non-stop around the world. At 28, she was made the youngest dame of the British Empire, the youngest lieutenant commander in the Navy, an honorary role, and said, and what greater claim than this, and said by the French, to be the best English sailor since Nelson. Now, when she came ashore after having gone around the world single-handed, and she still holds the record as the fastest uh, woman sailor, she was asked to what she attributed her success. And she said, teamwork. A website still talks about her as being Team Ellen. She said when commenting about the most solitary endeavor there is in the world that she couldn't have done it without a team. And to me, that epitomizes the benefit I've had at Clifford Chance working with a team, working to the strength of each of the individuals in that team. And if you can motivate people, getting ordinary people to do extraordinary things, then success will follow. It was Andrew Carnegie at the beginning of the last century who said, no man will make a great leader who wants to do it all himself or to get all the credit for doing it. But if there is one thing for a professional which counts above others, it's their reputation. More than anything, I have spent my time in seeking to enhance or perhaps more importantly, preserve the reputation of Clifford Chance. It took my forebears decades to create it. My colleagues have worked harder still to enhance it. But we each of us know that the professional, the lawyer in particular, who loses their reputation, who loses their reputation for integrity, honesty, impartiality, will never again be a good lawyer. And finally, whether it's entirely appropriate to say it in the hallowed halls here, of the London School of Economics, if there is one thing I've learned in the globalized world of the business of English law, it's that you have to keep learning. You have to keep improving. Life requires continuous education and improvement. And it's always struck me that it's perhaps the most tragic example of life's unpredictability in that actually he never said this. But on the day that he was assassinated, John F. Kennedy was due to give a speech in which he was going to say something very simple but worth remembering. He was going to say that leadership and learning are indispensable to each other. I've talked for too long now, uh, but I would really be very pleased uh, to answer any questions that you may have. Thank you very much. Well, there you have it. Um, do we have any questions from the floor? I shall not at this point abuse the chairman's privilege. Um, I have one or two questions of my own. So I'll throw it out to the floor, if I may. Yes. There's, there's a microphone coming. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, lecture. There's been recently sort of a great deal of transatlantic merger activity taking place with law firms with Dentons and Hogan Lovells. I was wondering what the impact that's had on the market and perhaps the future. Dif difficult to tell immediately as to what the, the impact of that will, has been. Um, in, in 1999, I thought that Clifford Chance was leading the world by merging with an American firm. Uh, it seemed to point the way. I thought everybody would do that. Um, it has to be said that that was one of the most difficult decisions we ever took. It was certainly one of the most difficult actions we ever took. Uh, and we probably put off everybody else doing it. But a lifetime is a short time in, in many respects in business. Uh, and so 10 years later, it seems the obvious thing to do. I think it still was then and remains now. Um, I think it's 
you're better able to serve your, your, your clients. But culturally, there are some gulfs, and, and within a large law firm, you need to have something of a common understanding, if not a common culture, and that's a challenge. Uh, I think uh, it remains that. And so I expect there will be more firms, but I'm not sure it's an easy thing to do. Right at the back. Is there a problem implied in um, the fact that in America an attorney um, handles litigation and advocacy and so on, whereas in England uh, solicitors do one part and barristers do another? Uh, how, do, how do they uh, reconcile that? I, I, I'm, I'm cognizant of the fact that I'm being recorded, so I have to, I have to, do, I have to be a little bit subtle, even though I've only got 41 days to go. Um, uh, certainly the more dramatic uh, may come about because of the ability to um, stand and hold forth, but frankly, uh, I don't think that makes a huge deal of difference. Uh, today, a lot of the dispute resolution is done outside of courtroom. A lot of that is done by um, attorneys around the world who both advise and represent. Uh, certainly for an international firm, uh, the US isn't the only uh, jurisdiction or the only area of training where people have uh, training both to represent and, and to advise the two roles. If you go to New Zealand, you go to Australia, you'll see that. Uh, and I think that What's really there is an expertise. The, the great thing about the British bar is their concentration uh, on particular areas. I don't think you can get a greater level of expertise, but it isn't now the sole domain uh, for representation in court or advocacy as such. Uh, and I think that will, over time, diminish, but their expertise obviously will remain. Uh, in terms of whether, you, whether that impacts the ability to, to merge with an American firm, um, I don't think it's the principal reason. I think I've had a challenge in my time as senior partner to try and persuade everybody in the firm that we talk about our client rather than my client and that the responsibility of the client goes beyond the individual's relationship with the client. There is a tendency, um, and I have to choose my words carefully, there's a tendency to see it to a greater extent because the market is so much bigger in the US. People talk about my client and the portability of, of their relationship with their client and to move from one firm to another as a result, which you don't see elsewhere in the world. Yes. Um, is there not a danger if English law firms focus solely on providing the super high value added uh, services to clients. The more junior lawyers don't necessarily get the opportunity to sharpen their skills in the more basic areas, which then allow you to really add the kind of experience that the clients are looking for. It's certainly said, uh, but I have to tell you it was said 35 years ago as well, when I started. Uh, I think it's a perpetual uh, challenge as to whether people feel that they could become over-specialised, because law firms ask them to specialise at an early stage. But I think if, if a message I'd, I'd, I'd probably try and give you is, is that the common skills that are required of a lawyer 
are adaptable to, transferable to any area of expertise. So I actually believe if you can hone those skills of analysis, of communication, of the ability to, to, to draft properly a, a, a legal document, you can transfer that anywhere around the world and in any legal environment because the data, the expertise, the knowledge is available to you now electronically that would have taken you years to accumulate. So actually, there is a risk that you get involved for a long period of time in one matter. But at the end of it, when you look back on it, I think you'll find that you've, you've gained a very wide experience, if only in a narrow field, but it is translatable. I think the next question is almost at the back there. Thank you. Uh, I have a feeling that um, the common law, especially UK common law, is sometimes uncertain and unstable. Uh, because uh, with respect to almost every issue, we can find a case both support it and against it. And the, the commercial world, it's the commercial persons, usually require somehow uh, foreseeability and certainty. So my question is, especially with uh, the, the Germany and China, it plays a more important role in the international market in the future. Is it possible that uh, the civil law system will play a more important role in the legal market. Um, I have to be a little bit careful because my firm obviously is comprised of hundreds of partners who have been brought up in a civil law jurisdiction uh, and might take uh, one view as against another. The important point to me about the practice of law, about the advice, particularly in a commercial environment, is, is the need for certainty. Uh, it, it really doesn't help a business environment to say, well, we'll find out in years to come what a court thinks of this. The, the, the basic concept of, of, a, of a common law approach, exactly as you've said, is that it assists certainty. You are not going to find a judge sitting there saying, actually, I can see what this document says. I can see what you agreed, but I don't think you should have done. I don't think that was appropriate, or I think there's a better way to have expressed it, and now that I can see that things haven't gone as you expected, I can find you a resolution, which was not necessarily the one you anticipated, but it's one that's appropriate. I stigmatize it slightly to, to make effect. But what you're looking for is an independent recognition and acknowledgement that what the parties intended is, wherever possible, legally deliverable. So for business, commerce, environment, and cross-border activity, I, I think the common law system is likely to prevail. But that's not to say that it won't be informed by um, a greater degree of, of, of intellectual study. First there. themselves is why should anyone be led by you? Um, if we can move to the bottom of the um, what qualities do you think all of are some of the biggest challenges and biggest successes you've had during your time at the I've, I've actually dreaded that question <laughs> because I've thought about it and tried to think what that answer is. And um, I, I still haven't really perfected it. Uh, what I have sought to do is maintain the values of the firm. Uh, there have been occasions where we've been 
you know, internally challenged in that way. Uh, where we've hit harder times, or, or I mean, it doesn't appear like hard times, but, but where our uh, ambitions have been thwarted, and where I've sought to reassure the partners that if they hold to the faith of their values in what they really think the firm is about, uh, and I believe that's about commitment, about um, ambition, about quality, and more importantly, about community, because we've reached a size at which we are a very large community ourselves, that we're no longer private, we're part of, 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 of the public uh, perception, that we're reported about, people know people who work with us, and we influence a community. Uh, and so I think maintaining those values. The second set, I think, is the recognition of the community engagement. It's been very difficult for people nowadays to, to, to affect what is commonly referred to as, as a, a work-life balance. And that's compounded by the fact that, you know, when I started, you were told there was a payphone at the end of the corridor, and if you wanted to make a private phone call, that's what you would use. Now, nobody did, of course. But today, every single person in the firm wants to be able to have access to the internet to go about their life whilst at work. And I think trying to facilitate that balance, which means to some extent where we have to help people live and have a rounded life whilst at work <coughs> in order to sort of balance out the fact that occasionally we grab some of their life and turn it into work is the way in which we'll achieve that balance. So maintaining values and at the <coughs> same time I think trying to play a bigger part in the community is what I would like to look back on and say I was, I was able to facilitate that to a greater extent. In terms of the challenge, it's the one of how do we ensure that we get the brightest people to come and work for us, and once they have come to work for us, to stay with us, because it provides them with a rewarding, enjoyable, fulfilling role in life. Uh, every year I, I greet groups of new lawyers joining the firm around the firm in New York, in Tokyo, anywhere else it might be, and make the same point and, and make this point strongly to them, which is if the only reason you're coming to work for us is for the money, you're in the wrong job. It's got to be something more than that. You've got to enjoy it. And for goodness sake, life is that long. Ideally, what you should be looking for is a job you enjoy and not a job you have to do. The next question is here, I think. Uh, thank you for your lectures today. Uh, I do have a question, but uh, before I say it, I'd just like to quickly say um, I applied to work experience at Clifford Chance. I wrote straight to you two years ago. I'd like to thank you for the kind words of encouragement you wrote in reply. You may remember me. Uh, now, on to my, uh, on to my question. Um, you mentioned that um, there are fledgling uh, foreign law firms which may become the Premier League in the future, and, and I, I consider um, London and, and Britain lucky to have this powerhouse of law that is a magic circle uh, on its doorstep. Uh, and you mentioned that these emerging law firms may well take over the magic circle. Uh, what, what do you think the chances are uh, of this? And would you argue that uh, there's anything that um, people outside the law firm can do uh, to ensure Britain's dominance in, in, the, in the legal in industry and its continuance? Um, I think I wouldn't necessarily say that the emerging law firms will necessarily take over from, but challenge share, and, and if amongst the top ten firms there isn't one from China, I'd be very surprised. Um, what can we do? I, I think it's absolutely imperative uh, 
that the government, that the regulatory authorities, that the law society, the Bar Council and others promote the benefits of the British legal system, uh, its openness, uh, its standards, and that it is seen as an important part of, 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 of the future of the UK. We, we've seen a lot, of, um, a lot of criticism of the financial services sector uh, in the last two or three years, some of it entirely justified, some of it, I'm afraid, lacking a basis in, in fact, but it is emotion. Um, and the legal services are, in many cases, interrelated to the financial services and the other professional services that are delivered here. And it's as important, I believe, to the future success of the economy, to growth of jobs, to growth of the economy, to repaying those debts. We have a successful professional services industry as we do a manufacturing industry. And if there's going to be a balance, it's unlikely in my mind to be one of an increased amount of, of metal bending activity, but perhaps mental bending activity in, in professional service firms. No, I just saw a hand go up there. One at the back and one over there. And then one over there. Hi. I'll be uh, quicker in my answers. Okay. Uh, I agree with your view uh, that law is um, a unique sector um, by definition and of the importance of pro bono work and giving something back. Um, and I also identify with the more aggressive <coughs> focus by law firms everywhere on business, uh, the bottom line, expansion, and so on. So how do you propose uh, we recognize, uh, reconcile those two trends going forward? In my view, most law firms have a very limited uh, activity in terms of pro bono work and so on. And I, do you see that getting uh, any better, or do you see them dealing with that in a different way in the future, given uh, business pressures that you've been talking about? In an attempt to be quicker, yes, and with difficulty, and hopefully. Um, by which I mean, I, I fully accept there is a challenge. I don't think we'll always get it right. Have we got it right thus far? No. But we have to recognise that need for, to, to use a phrase that was used in relation to financial services by the uh, head of the FSA, we have to have a social usefulness to be recognised uh, by the public at large. And we need to keep reminding ourselves of that. There are some great examples. Um, I could give a lot of examples from my own firm, but there are a lot of other firms out there doing a lot of work in the community because people inside the firm want to do it. Not because I'm or people like me are telling them they should, but actually trying to find ways to meet the demand from inside. The single most frequently asked question by prospective lawyers seeking employment with us when you know, the interview is handed over to them, what would you like to ask? First question is, what's your community policy? What's your corporate responsibility policy? And I don't think that's just because you've taught them how to be interviewed, but actually because that's important. So I think if we can recognise that, there's a good chance. But it will be, it will be a challenge. But I'm confident, but it won't be down to me. 
Well, I will pass on the opportunity to ask a question about bankers' pro bono work to give this gentleman the second row a chance to <laughs> ask a question. Um, I'm a UK-qualified lawyer, and I had the great opportunity to practice in India last year as a cross-border M&A lawyer. And it was interesting what you were saying earlier on about um, the markets opening up. I mean, I felt, having been there a year, that they could definitely do with British trained lawyers because I think that's how I find, find myself there. The dying need to do it because they have so much work, but it's very frustrating. They seem to take two steps forward and at the same time sort of seem to revert back with opening the policy. So, I mean, with your recent trip there, I was wondering whether, you know, what do you feel the future is with India? I'm absolutely confident that in two years' time, the market will open in India. Unfortunately, that's because I was told by the law minister that that's what would happen, but I've been told it was two years, every two years, for the last ten years. So it's consistent, and it remains the same. Um, it's a frustration. It is a, it is a closed... Uh, a million people think that Clifford Chance opening in India will, will take away their livelihood. I mean, if, if that was capable, goodness me, what else could we do? But you know, they, they, none of them will lose their job. We've opened in 22 different countries and never once as a lawyer has, have the number of lawyers in that jurisdiction reduced as a result of, of, of we opening there. In fact, what happens is that there are far more lawyers and far more jobs for the lawyers. If anybody should complain about opening legal markets, it should be the public at large, presumably, who wouldn't like to see quite so many lawyers around. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic it will happen. I'm pessimistic as to how long it will take to happen. But when it happens, it'll be like the Berlin Wall. It'll be pulled down from inside. Yeah. I think the next question is over in the far corner. <coughs> Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to ask questions. <laughs> um, so my question relates uh, to the... Um, form of organization of the uh, law firm. So my question is, uh, what are the main issues uh, do the national law firm face getting to the global market and operating there? I think if, if, if you're a national firm and you now believe that your strategy should involve your spreading your wings and trying to establish yourself internationally is, is really the entry barriers because unless you're talking about a jurisdiction where there aren't other internationally based firms, then your ability to come in to that market and offer an enhanced service such that you're going to win business is very tough. Uh, you go in without a track record, without people knowing you, and you say, you know, please send your work to me. You're either going to have to say, do it, I'll do it at half the price, which could be economically challenging, or I think more likely you're going to have to associate yourself with somebody who has got that experience. Hire people locally, merge with, associate with another firm. And to make that transition from national to international, um, I have the great benefit, it's, it's the result of 45 years. Uh, now things can be done much more quickly than that. But the challenge, I think, is how do you establish yourself as offering a comparable service of the right quality uh, and the right value when people don't know you. And that's the common problem, you know, for example, that a, that a junior barrister has. People only want to instruct barristers with experience. How do you get experience if you haven't got it? There are ways. 
So say you, you, you associate locally, um, you have to find a way of distinguishing yourself. It's no different, I think, in the business of law than any other business. Right, my colleague Eduardo on the front row, no favoritism now. How do you imagine top law schools will, um, will look like in 30 years' time, in particularly in the relationship between theory and practice? Yes. I might as well be a little bit provocative for you. I have a very, very strong belief uh, that the educational process, universities and law schools in particular, are there to train people for employment and not primarily to educate them. I know that's a challenge, but actually I believe that some 99% perhaps of all students at universities are going through university to get a job. And they need to have a training or an education, if we want to put it that way, that is best suited to finding them a job. Lots of different jobs, lots of different roles, but, but they've got to be in a better position by the time they come out at the end of that process, that course, to get a job than when they started. And ideally, to some extent, there's a competition that they're going to be in a better position than had they gone to another law school. So I think it will mean that the law schools of the future will have to work more closely with the profession to tailor that skill that they can produce to better usage. And again, slightly provocatively, the important thing for a law school, I believe, is to teach people to know where the law can be found, rather more than exactly what the law is, because it's going to move, it's going to change. But I'm, I'm struck by the fact that I believe those law schools around the world who more closely connect with the practicing professionals produce a better result. I think there's a lot of opportunity for you to work with existing firms, practices around the world in helping them. There's a big distinction in continental Europe. If you have a problem, you go to a professor and ask for their opinion. We could do that just as easily in the UK, but we seldom do. Right, I think the next question is the woman in the third row there. I'll probably have to cut off the questioning really quite soon, so may I urge you to be fairly brief? I think you're urging me to be brief. Um. It just kind of answered my question. I was going to ask, to what extent do you think that institutions, law departments such as LSA, have become a career factory? And you've kind of answered that. But on another question, just since that's been, do you not think you, that the firms such as Clever Chance are kind of monopolising the law students because they're here on week one? And like the bar doesn't have the same <coughs> opportunity. So if you could comment on that one, thanks. I'm not sure that I'm too worried about uh, the latter part. What I do want to make sure of is that we're producing, both within the educational establishments and thereafter, and we spend huge amounts of money and great lengths of time training people afterwards, as do many of the other firms. But what we really want is, the best, is, is, is people who can best develop their talent. What I wouldn't like you to think is that we want a factory because we're not interested in hiring, as we do in, in the UK, 120 people a year who all think the same, talk the same. We want 120 different people all coming up with 120 different solutions because what we're looking for is, is that distinction. So 
tempering any thoughts or comments that I've just made, it must be that we're looking for people who think individually. I think we've time just for two or three questions. And my Do you want to put them together and we'll see whether... Well, I'm going to bit of a exclude people who've already asked, I'm afraid. The, the next question comes from the back. Hi, good evening. Um, my question is, um, to what extent do you think multinational firms such as Clifford Chance exert an influence on the development of legislature in emerging markets where they practice? Two, two answers to that. Um, there's an attempt at regulating law firms and including them within lobbying groups uh, in the EU presently, which would require us to disclose the names of our clients uh, in advance. We don't see ourselves as lobbyists. What we do see ourselves as doing is making the legal systems work more effectively. So we are engaging, that is part of the role, with, um, with governments, with regulators and saying, wouldn't it be better if, or do you know what the consequences are of doing this? So I hope we're not being lobbyists in that way. I hope what we're doing is making the law more certain. Next question is in the middle there. Uh, given the interdependence of uh, successful financial services industry in London and the success of and the growth of English law firms over the past 10, 20 years that you've already alluded to, do you think senior members of the profession should be arguing for a re-regulation of that industry or, or for the status quo? Um, I'm absolutely convinced that the, the leaders of the financial services community want there to be changes in legislation. They want there to be improvements in regulation. Uh, they don't want to be seen as being you know, a, a risk to the public. Um, what they need at the same time, however, is ideally a, a reasonably level playing field on which they can compete by the provision of their service or the quality of their service or the cost of their service rather than some regulatory arbitrage. Uh, and without going into too much detail, the real risk at the moment is actually by seeking to prevent a repetition of what's happened before, increasingly financial services are going to be provided by unregulated organisations because the cost of operating in many cases for financial services will be too restrictive or too great and the competitive advantage will move to the grey market and you will see that to a much greater extent. So more regulation, jolly good, yes, has to be seen to be proportionate but should be welcomed uh, and the, the debate needs to shift to a point at which banks in particular but financial services in general are challenged to prove their worth, to show that they are of public value and to get on and do the job, not argue about the regulation. I'm going to make this the last question, which is uh, on the second round there. Thank you. Um, I was interested in your views on um, English law as an expert product, um, because I've recently become aware of English lawyers being sent to, uh, for example, Rwanda, where, which is formerly a civil law country, but the laws are now being rewritten to become common law, uh, a common law system. You have also, in the financial world, rich lobbies that are backed by uh, and London that spread ideas in the derivatives market. Do you think that it's because of the inherent superiority of English law that it is being exported or because it's backed by uh, significant resources? I, I think there are two other advantages, whether those have particular factors that you, you've referred to, I can't really be sure, but the, the universality of, of the English language certainly helps. Uh, and the impartiality of the system so that if you're talking about changing laws or, or contracting in countries a long way away, 
uh, but who are developing rapidly, they won't necessarily trust the system of their next-door neighbour or wish to follow their next-door neighbour's system. And that independence uh, of, of a British system uh, and its, its historical significance probably then is, is a more significant factor in that debate. I shall have to call it a halt there, I'm afraid. Um, I can't avoid the passing reference to the early 1960s in Ethiopia when the Ethiopians had a brand new civil code drafted by René David and a brand new law school full of Americans. A marriage made in heaven, you might think. Now, um, I can only thank Stuart Poppen for giving us um, an interesting and, and thoughtful uh, presentation today. And I'm sure you'll all join with me in uh, giving the customary thanks on this occasion. Thank you. Thank you.